Welcome to Radio Utopistan. It's the first episode and still kind of an utopia for me, this little radio. A place to gather visionary people from around the world, people that fight for their utopias, for progressive spaces within the system or outside the system, for electricity in war-torn neighborhoods, for example, or for trees, or for good food, for courage and comfort where there seems only oppression. And it's not about blueprints of how to organize societies, but about guideposts, roadmaps and inspirational people along the journey. I am Elisabeth White, a journalist. I mostly report on topics which revolve around natural resources and radicalism. So gold, copper, conflict, Nazis and Islamists. But this can get depressing sometimes. So I thought collecting people that shine a light on those topics might be refreshing. Happy if you come along with me. Today we meet Maria Torpakai. And ladies and gentlemen, she is impressive. Maria grew up in Pakistan, Vasiristan, at the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Maria calls it Taliban headquarters. The Taliban threatened to kill her for playing squash and shorts. They killed friends and family members of her. A lot of people did bad to me, but I forgive them. Like, I just do not want, I'm not upset with anybody. Not even with the Taliban? No, 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 no. I'm not upset with anybody. Obama once called Masiristan the most dangerous place on earth. His vision of counterterrorism was more and more drone strikes, which meant more and more killed civilians. Maria has a very special vision of counterterrorism. But it's not just about counterterrorism, her vision. It's about counter prejudices and counter closed mindedness in general. Today, Maria is a professional squash player in the international arena, and she has a foundation to support girls in Pakistan. She's 29 and lives in Toronto, Canada. There's a documentary about Maria. It's called The War to Be Her. And I guess it is a war to be Maria Torpakai. But there's also a lot of love in her life, she says. And one can see it in her eyes. I met her last year at a conference about global Islamism in Potsdam, Germany. We had lunch together in a first short interview. I always wanted to know more about her. So with COVID and Radio Utopistan, we reconnected in various internet sessions, one time even doing an online fitness workout together. The COVID lockdown is an easy task for her, she says. Because when the Taliban threatened to kill her, she hardly ever left the house for three years. And at the conference last year, I asked her what she thinks are the roots of extremism. As human, as governments, I would say, they're not doing their job properly. Then as parents, people are not doing their job properly. Then as teachers, they're not doing their job properly. So what happens if the guidance is not there, good role models are not there. Islam is when Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was not only about his words, but his action also speak to the people. So the action and the words should match. So it's the um, responsibility of the governments, of the parents, of the teachers and anyone out there. If we talk about peace, we have to spread peace. 
Uh, when we talk about uh, education, which I don't see a priority for any Muslim governments out there, it should be the priority. There is pollution, there is child labor, there are women rights violations, child rights violations. We have global warming and we have wars, conflicts, refugee crisis. Why is all this happening? Because we, being human, are not responsible enough whether on the government level, whether or as parents, whether as teachers, or whether as religious scholars. If you teach positivity not only in words but also in actions, because the children learn from your actions, not from your words, you would see different human beings out there. Already when she was four years old, she somehow sensed that something was horribly wrong with the way girls were treated in Vasiristan. For example, they were not allowed to play outside with the boys, which Maria wanted. So she cut off her hair and burned all her dresses at age four. She says that her parents were exceptionally supportive. Her dad just laughed and named her Genghis Khan. Maria's life disguised as a boy started. She could play outside now with the boys and do sports. And then when her real gender was revealed, she was harassed and bullied and the Taliban threatened to kill her. And this was not an idle threat. Pakistani Malala was shot in the head just for going to school. Malala survived and is an activist today, even a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Maria obviously also survived, but only because she didn't leave the house. Like a quarantine from Taliban. I could think that I am going to change the system in that way. I'm not going to explain myself to anybody. I'm going to find a way. Maria. Oh, sorry. It got uh, disconnected. My internet. Ah, or, or my internet. I don't know. My internet. Ah, okay, it doesn't matter. A lot of young girls, they're beautiful girls. But they still doubt themselves. They still think they're not pretty enough. You know, they're not good enough. They're not smart enough. That's also not freedom. You're not freeing yourself. Maria Torpakai's Utopia is a world in which everyone is really free, she says. Also from the inside, free from the mind. No prejudices, no extremists. Sport and good education can lead to that, she's convinced. At the sidelines of this conference last year, I wanted to know what role Islam is playing in all of this to her. A lot of Muslims right now, they are explaining to the world that Islam is not like that. Islam is not like this, you know, trying to be defensive. But I feel that instead of explaining to the world that this is not Islam or that is not Islam, show them in your actions what is Islam. And what is Islam? It's definitely the same thing. It's nothing different than uh, freedom of choice, freedom of expression. Everyone should be allowed to follow their whatever their religion, you know. So that's one thing. And second thing is that I find Islam very beautiful. When I read Quran, it touches my heart. It gives me goosebumps. And if I don't understand some of the laws that are a little bit confusing, then I go into the background and it takes a lot of research. You have to put effort into it. A lot of people, they just go and listen to somebody. So it depends, you know, where you end up, in whose hands you end up. And women have a lot of rights in Quran, which I read, that I understand. 
I can play sports, everything. And I wanted to know more. We Skyped at the beginning of the COVID lockdown. The sound is, nah, yeah. But I hope it's not too disturbing for you. I give you a summary of our almost two-hour talk here. First, I wanted to know what she still remembers from that scene when she was four and burned all her dresses. And how a little girl already can understand that those clothes are somehow part of the problem women are facing all around the world. When you're a kid, you really don't think of it as an oppression or anything like that. Uh, the only thing as a child that I could see was like seeing boys ha having short hair, having different clothing and playing outside while I wanted to be among them playing sports. But I was looking different. My clothing was different. My hair was different. And I was like, I want to be like them so I can play, you know, I can just be, um, you know, camouflage in them, you know. So, and I saw the girls who looked like me, like same clothing, same hair. They were playing with dolls, sitting at home, you know. So I was like, you know, I don't want to be outside. I want to look like those boys. I want to play with them, those kind of things. I, I told my parents a couple of times, but I was little probably. They didn't really pay attention that much. So to get the attention or maybe make my point, I just uh, knew how my mom makes bread and set fire on, you know. So I put on my brother's clothes on and uh, tried to cut my hair. I ruined it, but you know, um, I tried. But at the same time, I collected all my girly dresses, everything, and I just put it in uh, one pile. And um, my mom used to put kerosene or a bottle of kerosene oil under uh, one of the tree. So I knew how she does it. So I, I put a little bit on that and I remember that scene definitely. How do you remember your feelings? Was it with anger or was it with some kind of excitement? Or I mean, it's it's just for me, it's so hard to imagine as a four-year-old kid to to make all those things, to get this kerosene, to to take the clothes. And I also think it's a destiny. Like the way things happen in my life, everything is just unbelievable and everything is a miracle for me. So, being a girl from tribal regions of Pakistan on a part of Afghan border, like Afghanistan border, and this region, you know, is completely lawless and nobody really paid attention. We were always in war. We were, we had some of, we had Afghan refugees when Soviet Union war was there. So we were always in war. You know, we always had terrorism, Talibanization. And uh, we, uh, our, our local customs and cultures were really outdated. Nobody really paid attention to girls and their rights and sports. Or sports was not uh, not even a question, you know, even education. To me, like coming from that region, I speak different languages today. I speak English. I speak Urdu, you know, I wear shorts and I have such parents who always supported me. It's just a miracle everything happened. How... I got so focused, like I I get so focused when I want to do something, I sometimes really don't even ask, I just do things. You know, I just don't ask for permission, I just do things sometimes. And I, I actually, most of the times, this is my habit. I was lucky that my father supported me and he just smiled and he said, you know, from now on your name is Genghis Khan. He just named me. You know, usually parents don't create that kind of environment with their children. 
Mm, especially not in tribal regions, I guess. No, they want to keep fear, you know. They want their children to be afraid of the father, so they listen to him, you know. They grow up with that kind of um, oppressed mentality, you know. And that creates a lot of anger, negativity, and hate, right? So that kind of trust you hardly see in parents back home, you know, in our countries. Because they don't, they don't think women can be equal, women can do jobs, women are strong, women can think. They don't think so. And where did your parents have that wisdom from? Well, my father, my dad is, you know, he's naturally very much like that. He he thinks about nature. He's very he has a very strong faith. Even you look at the nature, you know, there is so much um, to learn from it. We learn flying from birds. We learn swimming from fish. We can learn from uh, ants, you know, hard work and living in in unity and good community. Where everybody's working. So if we can learn all those things, examples are out there for us. How come we cannot learn that if a girl and a boy, they both are born from the same womb, how can we differentiate that a boy is better than a girl? Or a boy deserves better than the girl? Like, why? And how did you then end up with the sports? Well, the thing is, like, I was... Um, I, I, I raised my twin brothers. Now Maria is telling the story of her childhood, how she took care of her twin brothers when her parents had to be somewhere else, sometimes for weeks, how her family got threatened because they were so open-minded in an area where girls are sold like goods for just a little bit of money, as she says. She's telling how her parents taught her and her siblings at home. How her sister Aisha Gulalai became the youngest member of Pakistani parliament and dared to accuse President Imran Khan of sexism, even before the Me Too movement started. The hero in Maria's stories is always her dad, a surprisingly open-minded character in a very narrow-minded area, as she says. A tribal elder and the teacher. All those stories that comes to my mind, I just... I just don't know how to thank my dad for anything. Like, he's just unbelievable. Yeah, it sounds really like an unbelievable human being. Yeah, yeah. but still, we, we didn't arrive at where you started. Where was the coincidence to get you into sports? <laughs> you lose that. Well, the thing is that, you know, as I was always into sports since my childhood, hanging outside, you know, running after kites or, uh, you know, uh, herding sheep with the Afghan refugees there. So, you know, that was always so much inspiring for me. But I never knew that, you know, if life exists beyond that. I never knew. But then they moved to Peshawar, a city of two million people. Maria still went under the name of Genghis Khan and she was still running around with the boys and getting into fights with them. And those fights, they were getting more and more aggressive. One time somebody had beaten up her twin brothers. You remember, that's what she, how she started her story, um, how she ended up in sports. So she went after those guys that had beaten up her twin brothers to beat them up. But then she got punched in the face with a brick. The wound had to be stitched with 12 stitches. Her dad took her to a sports center to turn her energy into a different direction, her aggression, she says. 
And there she first started with weightlifting. And there were some squash courts right beside that. In my break time, I would just watch those kids play and I was so fascinated with the sport. The rackets, the, the shoes, the, the squash court, the energy, you know. I was like, ah, this is so amazing. Like, I, I want to play this sport. Also, her dad liked the idea. It's better for you to hit a wall than people, he said. They went to the squash academy together. My dad took me there. So, yes, he introduced me as his son, Genghis Khan, again. But it did not work because my, they needed my birth certificate. So the director of the academy, he said uh, to my dad, like, we need your birth certificate. And then my dad had to tell him that this is my daughter, Maria. And he, he was a very good man. He was educated. He was, um, he was a wing commander in the Air Force. He was a director of the academy. So he smiled and he said, are you sure that's your daughter? And my dad is like, yeah, that's my daughter. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, well, I'm so happy that finally a girl is going to play sports here. The director and Maria kept the secret of her real identity for a while. But then someday it came out. So this news spread out. And then all those boys thought, oh, I'm a girl. I'm weak, you know, even they were scared of me, you know. But they were started using all kind of, you know, humiliating words and all those men would start harassment, started bullying with their uh, few attacks, you know. And I couldn't even go to the shop, you know, because the shopkeepers, they were treating me in a very uh, disgusting way. I just, I went into a very deep depression, like what's happening, what changed, you know, and I was really angry, you know, that all those boys, they went out with telling me and I'm, you know, and they all got against me, you know, in that way. And I'm like, okay, I'm not playing squash with anybody now. So I started playing by myself for hours and hours from morning to evening, I would come. And she also tried going to school for the first time in her life. I had short hair, very short hair, like shaved head. And I had girly clothes on because this was a school uniform. So the boys were sitting in the back of the bus and the girls were all sitting in the front of the bus with some, with some teachers. So I got on the bus, my sister went to the front and I started going to the back and I sat right in the middle of the back seat among the boys. <laughs> Why? Do you know what you were thinking? Well, I was like more scared of girls, you know? I'm like, what am I doing there? What am I going to do there? <laughs> you know? I'm like, what's going to happen, you know? And the teacher looked at me with so much anger and she said, you come here. Looking at me in a very weird way, you know like something like an alien ended up in, in school, you know. It just felt so different for me, you know, like I couldn't really talk to girls, how to talk, what to say, um, what's happening about, like, what's my identity, who am I? I was so lost, you know, so I would just sit there. Did you know that? Did you know that for yourself? What is your identity? Who are you? Did you? I knew. You knew yeah, for yourself. I knew. I knew I'm a girl in that way, but I never. It never came to me in my mind that I am a girl. You know, like that kind of thing. Like I always thought I'm just equal as anybody else. I'm just human, right? Yeah. That the way I was treated at home, you know. Yeah. To me, girls were no different than boys, and. Uh, I, I didn't know what they are teaching, you know. I couldn't understand because I did not grow up with that kind of education system. Yeah. 
So I did not really fit in. So they would scream at me, you know, why you don't understand? Why you this, you know, without, rather than explaining things to me. I was thinking, what's next for me? What's my life? Like, what am I going to do? And I knew I'm not that kind of girl that, you know, I don't want to end up with like those girls who get married and, you know. So I decided all night I was thinking that tomorrow I'm going to take my racket and I'm going to leave early morning 8 a.m. and learn squash by myself. And I started winning all the junior tournaments in Pakistan. And during the tournament, sometimes you will get shoes, sometimes you get, you know, you will get rackets, some clothing, so uh, money, you know. So, and I would bring all the money to my mom and dad and give them all the money. I won bronze medal in World Juniors. The Taliban already had taken notice of her. I got threats in 2007. There was so much terrorism happening right there, bomb, bombing every day. Uh, some of our family friends, you know, they died. Uh, they were kidnapped and killed too by the Taliban. The thing is that um, at that time I was all about squash and focused and want to win. That was my passion and, you know, things were happening so much around me. But my, my, my mind was all into squash, you know. That was that focus. I played really well, I played another tournament, I made it to the final and I was, I became a challenge for the top uh, women uh, in the world and I was 16 years old and I was nominated as the Young Rising Player of the Year award, you know, by the International Squash uh, Association. And uh, the news spread out in Pakistan, the government, you know, the, the at that time uh, the president was Musharraf. He, realized that from that kind of that part of the world like Waziristan my village a girl is playing sports is huge he gave me award the prime the prime minister gave me award I got a car a small car and I gave that car to my dad I'm like this is for you dad and the news was all over you know television everywhere and that was the time when I got threats from the Taliban. Like, I got more into attention. And um, when I got that threats, like, they were severe. I had to pay attention because everything was happening there with our own friends, you know. Things happened. And I come from the same area, same place that they control, and which is headquartered to Taliban, which is their center, right? I am from the same tribe as they are. So if they are, t they are trying to teach a lesson to entire Pakistan, how come their own girl from the same region, from the same tribe, is playing sports in shorts and skirts? So an Islamic way for them, you know. She didn't tell anybody, not to cause more conflict, as she says. She just didn't show up at the squash court anymore. But then some high-rank Air Force chief called her, she says and in Pakistan Air Force is responsible for squash. So she had to tell him about the threats. And he hung up the phone without even saying bye or anything. He hung up the phone. And in the evening I see, I hear, that they are discussing my security issue in the parliament. And the stickers, you know the stickers in the television? 
it was saying that you know we are going to give her undercover security we're doing this i'm like no like what's happening right now then they put snipers around the squash court even today the squ- our squash court that squash court has tank in front of it a tank a squash court the only squash court probably in the world that has a tank and snipers on top of it so i'm like this is making even more dangerous because in Pakistan, there were, you know, our prime minister was killed, you know, our governors were killed, our army headquarter was attacked. How can you say I'm safe in that? So when the first threats came, she just stayed home. Only sometimes she left the house at night to play squash in an abandoned squash court, she says. This quarantine lasted for three years. Of course, I wanted to know how she did it. I was at home, I was, uh, I had a vision. I was thinking of squash court, winning world championship. I had to find a way, there was a passion behind that. And Nelson Mandela, he spent 27 years in, in a prison, but he had a vision. So if you have a vision, it will give you power to fight, you know, to fight back, find a way. And the, the, the strength to endure. So I, all I could think that I am going to change the system in that way. So which means I'm not going to explain myself to anybody. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to, going to play tournaments. And my dad wanted told me, if you want to play, you have to leave the country emails every day like thousands of emails i send every day and for for three years and every email i sent i would sleep with peace and think there will be a message tomorrow but then there was no message not for three years she kept trying and trying she says she believes in god and that if you keep trying the universe has to come back to you It's a test, she says. Just never give up. And then one day, there was a message. It was an invitation from a famous squash player in Canada. A year later, she was at the National Squash Academy there, only going back to Pakistan for short visits. The last time she got threats was in 2016, she says. The threat is always there, you know? You never know. But I still go back and forth. I still stay very low-key. You know, I don't really tell anybody where I am, what I do, if I'm in Pakistan or not. Yeah, but I mean, you're still you're still a Pakistani girl playing sport in shorts or skirts. So yeah, and, and, and play you're playing on an international but... level, and you're on the news, and you're online, and you are what Taliban don't like or any Islamist doesn't like. No, I mean, right, right. But the thing is, like. I'm happy and thanks, thanks to God that nothing happened so far. Like Malala got shot. Like I, in, I got threats before her, and yeah. she and she's from the settled area. You know, I'm from the tribal areas, and I'm from the hub of the organization where they all live and where they all operate. You know, and I'm from the same tribe. To, I didn't want to, any girl to go through this. The kind of support, the, the kind of education, the kind of uh, life that I had, the unconditional love that my parents gave me, 
I want to give that to all those girls back home. Play my role as a parent to them. Now, Maria has a foundation, the Maria Torpakai Foundation. It encourages Pakistani girls to do sports, provide health care and education. They organize cross-border tournaments and build a women and children's hospital in North Vasiristan. At the moment, they are fighting the COVID virus in Pakistan, raising money and awareness, distributing information, food, gloves and face masks. Okay, sweet. Sweet. Okay, we have 10 minutes left. I have some Radio Utopistan questions that everybody gets asked. So, um, what is your Utopistan? So, how would the world look like? My dream world is everyone is happy, everyone has enough, everyone is peaceful, you know. To live with freedom, that's the thing. You're born free, you live free. Mm. And freedom brings happiness? You mean freedom means happiness, you said? Yes, for you, freedom equals happiness. Because I see, in, I mean, in Western cultures, a lot of people are just overwhelmed by the freedom they have and they just don't know what decision oh. to take with all the freedom they have. I think freedom is happiness. If you're free at soul, if you accept yourself fully and you're all about yourself, you will always be free. But if you're not free from inside, you have doubts, you have fears, you, you do not, you hate things about yourself, you do not accept yourself fully, right? It has to start from inside you. You have to be free inside. You know, a lot of young girls, they're beautiful girls. But they still doubt themselves. They still think they're not pretty enough. You know, they're not good enough. They're not smart enough. That's also not freedom. You're not freeing yourself. Yeah. What are you doing to make this dream world turn into reality? Well, I, I'm focused on two things. Mm -hmm. Mind and body. Education and sports. And these are integral part of, like, sports is integral part of education. The world today is neglecting that because education is way, is vast, you know, is way bigger phrase. And the kind of education when we talk about the world is talking about go to school, get a book, get a pen. I understand those phrases, but I do not agree with those things because going to school to me is kind of, What kind of school? What kind of book? Right? All those things matter. And sports teach you a lot about self-respect, respect for others. It connects you to yourself, to humanity. Today, education in the world, I do not agree with that. And on your way to this dream world turning into reality, is there one returning question that's always coming to you like something you just you do not understand something like that's always coming to you like i don't understand why people do this and that or i don't understand how can it be that this and that is there something yeah i don't understand how people can be so violent i do not understand when i see people have prejudice when people are racist when people are biased against other religions when people are um, go to that extent in hate that they can kill anybody or hurt anybody. I, I think there's something missing in those humans. It's just like, like I yesterday I was watching the story of um, the medieval times. Yeah. 
and the world history when you read there was so much violence but today we have much more information you know learn from it and this is a great time you know right now in this crisis when people are in quarantine just learn about yourself connect to yourself who you are like i myself i know like if i hurt somebody i cannot sleep that's why i do not even try that way so some people say this person did this to me i'm going to take revenge to me it's a great opportunity to forgive people and that give the forgiveness when you forgive people like a lot of people did bad to me but i forgive them like i just do not want, i'm not upset with anybody not even with the taliban no 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 i'm not upset with anybody because if i react the same way i'm the same way too and i want to lead with the example too like if i'm teaching kindness if i'm teaching uh about love i cannot just use words i have to live it yeah. just like squash you know you work on it you train you improve skills it's kind of a skill you know you you train your brain you train your soul there is consciousness in us that keep telling us that this is right or wrong which one gives you more peace yes to some people maybe taking revenge but if you take a revenge it leads to another bad decision another bad bad circumstance but the good things that you do in life it will always put you in a right path on good times good people will come in your life they will cross path always things happen like this right it's just but hard also, to see it's often it's hard to see what is the good and what is the bad i mean i guess this is also the work it it's it's so easy to say it's good to do good things of course but sometimes it's not that clear what's the good thing and for some people it's hard to find that out well it's small things it's small things for example i would clean dishes for my roommate sometimes you know or cook for them sometimes or if they need help you know it's just small things you know i feel find a lot of joy in small things and small things adds up to big decisions too when you are responsible in small ways big decisions you will always take also make responsibility so this was maria torpakai and the first episode of radio utopistan my name is elizabeth white thank you so much for listening till the end i'm curious what you think tell me also tell me whom else to talk to what questions or topics to put out there. Radio Topistan will be out there every two weeks or so. Sometimes just interviews, sometimes more edited stories. Let's experiment along the way. If you liked this episode, please spread the word. Send your friends and family or whoever could need some inspiration for their very own utopias, private or global ones. And if you want to support Maria and her utopia, You can find her on Instagram and Facebook. And the Maria Torpukai Foundation also has a website with pictures and videos and more stories if you want. I will put everything in the captions. And also three more names. Robert Pilgram, for example. He did this music here. He's a composer and a friend of a friend. Robert Pilgram, remember this name. Also, 
Christine Anders. She did the drawing for Radio Topistan. Christine Anders is an illustrator and a very dear friend of mine. And another friend was important here, Fiona Weber-Steinhaus. She is a journalist and helped me with words, courage and comfort. Thank you, thank you. Always good to have good friends. Radio Topistan will be telling you more stories in about two weeks or ten days. I think we're gonna go to Africa. Tune in and you'll find out. <laughs>